Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Now, here's your host, No Shame on You's founder and president, Miriam Ament. Welcome to the 12th podcast of No Shame on You, an organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising mental health awareness. My name is Miriam Ament, and I am the founder of No Shame on You. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Rabbi Ilan Glazer, author of And God Created Recovery. We met two years ago as part of an immersion program at Beit Shuva in LA. In his book, Ilan shares his journey with addiction and so much guidance to help others. Hi, Ilan. So great to have you on our podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Miriam. It's a pleasure. It's, it's our pleasure. So after reading your book, I know I am going to ask a wide-ranging question because I know you've had quite a fascinating journey, but I wanted to start out by asking, what is your background? Where did you grow up and go to school and, and all that kind of fun stuff? Well, my first answer is that I probably haven't grown up yet, but my second answer... <laughs> I'll get to that someday, right? Uh, my, my my second answer is that my father was a congregational rabbi for many, many years, and my mother was a day school teacher and principal, so we moved around every couple of years. So we lived all up and down the East Coast, throughout the U.S., and a little bit into Canada, and a little bit in Israel. So I can't actually say that I'm that I'm from anywhere, but I was I was very involved in the Jewish world growing up, of course, and I, I could say that I grew up in synagogues and Jewish summer camp and youth groups, and somehow, by the grace of God, went to college in New York City with uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary and a little bit at Columbia University and Sydney College, and uh, now I am blessed to live in Silver Spring, Maryland. You've had quite the journey of, of living in a lot of places, lots of experience around the world. And in your book, you also detail that addiction can be thought of as a lack of connectedness. Can you elaborate for our listeners on that, about what, what that means by a lack of connectedness and how that translates into addiction? Sure. So I think that what what many people don't understand about addiction is that addiction is actually the solution to a problem. And I know that we think that that's crazy because addiction is inherently a problem in and of itself. But for the people who are in active addiction, addiction is actually the answer to some of the pain that they are carrying. So for me, I started out as an addict from a very young age. And my first, uh, you know, the, how it first manifested for me was with food. And my mother was a professional baker, and I learned how to how to bake, as did my siblings. And the unwritten rule in the house was there was no emotion that couldn't be solved with the right amount of sugar. <laughs> and so, if I, I'm, I know I'm not alone in this in this trend, this happens throughout much of the Jewish world, and certainly much of the rest of the world as well. And and uh, you know what I learned was if I was sad. I couldn't really talk to my parents about it because, you know, we just didn't have that kind of relationship and it didn't feel safe and they had their own problems. And I couldn't really talk to my siblings because, again, it, it wasn't quite right. And I was lonely and isolated and didn't feel good about myself. And I knew that when I ate a cookie or a brownie or a piece of cake or something else, that I'd feel better. Right. And so I turned to 
these unhealthy desserts and I ate them all the time and I made them all the time and I ate all sorts of things. It's amazing that I, you know, am not heavier than I am given how much I consumed back in the day. <laughs> and I, you know, quickly understood that these were actually ways for me to feel better about myself. They were not healthy ways, but it was what I knew. It was what I could do at the time. Would it have been much better for me had I had close friends and, and family members I could turn to? Absolutely. But I didn't have that, or at least I didn't feel like I could do that. And so I turned to food as my first, you know, forgive the expression, drug of choice. And, you know, what was the, what was the problem with it was, A, I wasn't learning to actually address my own inner emotional state. And B, well, when you eat a lot, and then you eat a lot, and then you eat a lot more, shockingly, you gain weight, as I did, right? And then I'd get yelled at for becoming fat, as if I didn't know it already, right? But my only answer to feeling sad was to eat more. And so the cycle just continued, and I didn't know how to get out of it out of it until many years later. Thank you for sharing that, because I know that's not an easy thing to share, and, and that's so relatable for so many people in our community and, and around the world. Uh one question I wanted to ask is how um, people often say they can't recover from any addiction and especially food, I mean, any addiction. And then when it comes to food addiction, I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard because people like you described, get into a pattern of, Oh, I'm sad. I'll have ice cream. I'll have sugar. I'll have something and it'll make it all better. How, how do you, what are some of the most common things you hear from people about why they can't recover from such an addiction? And what would you say to them? So I hear a number of things. I hear a lot of people say things like, oh, I could never give up chocolate. And, or, oh, I really love cheese and I can never stop eating it. And, and the answer is, of course, you could stop eating things. Right now, you don't necessarily need to give up chocolate or cheese or your favorite food. You just need to make sure that you're having it only at certain times. Right. I'm not telling anybody that they have to give up anything. It's it's actually a, a wise idea to meet with a good nutritionist who can help you design a food plan that you can stick to. And you don't always have to give up everything cold turkey. Now, in my case, I did have to give up flour and sugar and gluten and dairy in order to be healthy. Right. That's what my body needed. But that's not what everybody needs. Right. So the first thing I would say was you don't necessarily have to give up anything. You just have to give up the thinking that says that whatever it is that you're looking for is going to fix you. Because if that were the case, it probably would have happened already, right? So you have to learn how to be comfortable and you do have to learn how to set limits and boundaries with yourself, which is very hard for so many of us to do, right? The next thing I would say is, you know, to anyone who thinks they can't recover, well, if I can do it, then so can you. I'm no better than anyone else, right? And the only way that I've been able to do it is by surrounding myself with other people who've been struggling with the same thing and finding a sponsor who's worked a recovery program for many more years than I have and connecting with others who've been in the recovery rooms and who have wisdom to share with me about how to make this work. And I know that today, when I get triggered and upset, I don't have to reach for the food or the pornography or other unhealthy behaviors. I can call a recovery friend. I can call my sponsor. I can go for a walk. I can listen to music. I can just sit and breathe and I can be okay with the fact that I'm having emotions, right? Emotions are not the enemy, right? If I can just integrate them into myself and be okay with the fullness of who I am and not run away from that, then I really don't have to eat 
things just to distract myself from being myself. And that's what I would want for everyone, right? It's not about how much you eat or how much you drink. It's really about how do you see yourself when you look in the mirror? And what recovery has allowed for me is an opportunity to lay down a lot of the the blame and the guilt and the shame and the self-loathing and to find a better and happier way forward. And I want that for myself. I want that for everyone. Right. Which Thank you, which is awesome. And sharing your journey helps people uh, in countless ways. Uh, along those lines, uh, you towards the end of the book, you talk about the challenges. You sort of touched on it that now if you're feeling sad, instead of reaching for food, you call your sponsor, you you go for a walk, you you find like sort of coping mechanisms to handle it instead of food. Uh, but you and, and you also talk about towards the end of the book the challenges that people can face. You know whether it being you know on the holidays with family or some, you know something like that where they're surrounded by potential triggers. So if if it's a holiday and someone can't reach for the phone. Um, and can't necessarily go for a walk. Um, describe, you know, how how do you recommend someone getting through those times when they might be more limited in the tools they can use? Sure, I'll say a couple things. One is you can always bring a recovery book with you somewhere, right? And just even having it or reading a page or two a day. Many of us have daily recovery readers. I read out of several of them every day, and they just, you know, I look at them when I wake up and when I go to sleep, and it sort of puts me in a in a better state of mind, right? It's also helpful in, you know, big holiday events. Maybe there's a big family dinner where there's going to be a lot of drinking and you're worried about that. Well, is there someone in the family who you can connect with ahead of time and say, I just want you to know that I'm not drinking and I'd really like for you to be my ally in this, right? And often just having one other person who knows, who can be supportive, right? Who can understand what you're going through, even if they're not you know, sharing the same problem as you, it's it's really helpful to have other people who can support you. Now, some families will stop having alcohol at their events because they want to be supportive of someone who is trying to to stop drinking. Right? Other families can't do that, and that's okay. Right? It really it is the responsibility of the person who's trying to to get off the drugs or the alcohol or whatever the addiction is to take care of themselves. Right? It could be that they limit how much time they're going to spend with their family members. I know people who've said I can go for two hours. After that, I start to get antsy and I don't want to see them drinking after after dinner and they just get up and leave. Right. Some people will go take a nap. Right. There, there are times when, you know, if I find myself in a in a particularly difficult situation and somebody's saying something or eating or drinking something or, you know, making a joke that I don't really think is funny, I, I may just excuse myself and go to the bathroom and say, I'll be right back. Right. And nobody's going to judge me for having to go to the bathroom, whether I need to or not. Right. It's just a way that I can just clear my head and breathe and remember that I don't have to believe the same things as everybody else. Right. And that's okay. Right. What's most important is maintaining my own peace of mind, my own sanity, and letting go of this idea that, you know, I have to be in charge of what everybody else says and I have to agree with everyone. No, it's actually people are okay with being themselves. I can just be me and and learn how to walk a little more gracefully and not get as triggered as I perhaps used to by some of the things that people say or do. That's great. That's very, very helpful. So it sounds like going in going in with strategies, both having sort of a buddy there, if you're going to be in a situation that is not as uh, common as typical, you're going to be with family or whatever, having a buddy there, having an exit strategy, knowing that you can 
can can get up at any point and excuse yourself. I think these are some great strategies and setting a boundary. Like if you know, like you said, you know, being there for a couple hours and then you know that that's your limit, then then you set that ahead of time. So no one's thinking twice about it. Um, right. And, yeah. and, and that's perfectly okay. And and those right. are those are some important tips and I, I use them regularly. That's great. Those are great tips. Thank you. Um, along uh, the line of giving tips, what advice would you give for someone with a family member or friend living with addiction who doesn't necessarily want to get help, but, you know, you see that they're going through this and whether it be food or alcohol or, you know, the many other types of addiction you, you uh, mentioned in, in your book, you know, what, you know, are there ways people can help? I know, I know you talk about, you know, you sort of, you have to help yourself and in the same way you're going into a situation, you have to be the one to advocate for yourself. But what would you tell someone who's watching a friend or family member going through this? So this is a really challenging question because there are so many people who see their loved ones engaging in unhealthy behavior, and it's it's really challenging to know how to respond to them, and and, and what we should do, you know, to support them. And and the best thing I can say, and I I completed a training recently with a wonderful organization called Shatterproof, which has created a family education model for family members to know what to do and what to think. And I'll I'll be bringing that work into the Jewish world a lot more going forward. And, and, and one of the things that they teach is that we have to remember that when it comes to someone else's disease, we didn't cause it, we can't cure it, and we don't control it. Which is to say that all we can do is all we can do. It's very important for our loved ones in, in active addiction for them to feel like we are a safe space for them to share. And we can encourage them and we can give them some guidance. But at the end of the day, that recovery only really works when the person in recovery chooses to change their life and do all they can to get better. Right. Absent that, right, I've seen parents, you know, who will who will throw their children into rehab. But if the child isn't really ready for it, it's probably not going to take. Right? Right. Which is not to say they don't get any benefit from it, right? And rehab can do a lot of good. But ultimately, you know, someone has to really be ready to do this on their own, right? The best thing we can do for ourselves is to make sure that we don't get taken down with them as they're spiraling downward in their addiction. And what I mean by that is, right, for so many of us, you know, we see these things and we worry and we have this anxiety and what's going to be with them and what do I do? And the best thing we can do is to take care of ourselves, to encourage them to find recovery. Maybe we can, you know, go online and see if there are recovery meetings that happen near them and just say, hey, you know, I came across this thing. I think it might be interesting. Maybe I'll even go with you to the first meeting, right? Maybe I can sit with you to think about your goals for who you want to be and how can I help you do that, right? It it gets tricky now, of course, parents and other loved ones are entitled to set boundaries. And if someone is coming into your home and they're stealing from you every night and they're abusing you and saying hurtful things, then yeah, there may come a time when you have to say, this behavior is not tolerated under my roof. And if you can't shape up, you need to go somewhere else. Right? That's an extremely difficult decision for so many family members to make. Right? Right. And I, I, don't, I don't envy that. Right? But I think you know, if I had one, one word of advice or one phrase of advice, I, w- I would say when in doubt, right, show them as much love as possible. Because really what most addicts are suffering from is a lack of self-love. 
and for us to remind them that they are honored, they are cherished, they are valuable just as they are, and they don't have to put on any fronts with us. They can just be themselves. And we're going to hold them with what a teacher of mine likes to call ruthless compassion. Right? Always hold people in compassion, always give people the benefit of the doubt, and inspire them to want to take steps forward. And that's not an easy thing to do, but I think it is really the best thing we can do for someone is to, is to sit with them and say, you know, what are the consequences of this kind of behavior? And how do you see yourself getting better? And how can I support you? Right? I think those are good open-ended questions that people can, can use with their loved ones. Uh, there's no guarantee that any of them work, right? But I think most important is to keep the line of communication open, to be willing to be supportive if they are, you know, if their loved one is willing to do some of the work. Thank you. That's beautiful and really, really uh, helpful. And I, I love the idea of ruthless compassion and just being there for someone and, and opening the door and, and sort of guiding them, you know, on, on a path when they're ready for it. So thank you for sharing those really helpful. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I will just add that often addiction happens in families, right? So if there's a family member, it's worth looking at the family system as a whole, right? Are there clear boundaries, right? What is the person in addiction responding to, right? These things don't happen just out of nowhere, right? Often right. it's helpful to look at the whole family structure and to say, right, oh, all of these, you know, adverse childhood experiences is the language they use today, right? All of these negative experiences that the addict has gone through, perhaps that's taken a toll, right? How can we give them help, right? Or right. maybe it's true that a parent has not shown as much love to the addict as they would have liked, right? Are there things the parents can do, right? Do they need to, you know, go to a meeting, you know, for family members themselves, right? Do they need to work on their own codependency or how they show up in relationships, right? It's it's worth thinking not just about the addict, but about the whole system and how can the system be strengthened so that the addict can get more help. Right, right. Okay, that's, thank you. That's very, very helpful. Um, so you you touched on that you you've had many different types of trainings. You just went through a shatter, shatterproof training, and you've you've done lots of different things. And you talk about in your book the many many things you have going on. Can you tell us some some of what you have coming up at the end of uh, for the rest of 2019 and in 2020? Sure. So what I'm looking to do at this point is that un unfortunately, as I was going through my own recovery from addiction, I was looking around the Jewish world and seeing that there are actually very few resources for Jews in recovery. And and that's that's unfortunate on many levels, because what it means is that the Jews who need the recovery aren't finding it in Jewish spaces. Right. So what I ultimately am trying to do is now with, you know, now that the book is out, I've also created a, a Facebook group for anyone who is touched by these issues, would like to find more resources uh, in, in the Jewish world around addiction and recovery. But I'm also starting to reach out to rabbinical and cantorial programs and Jewish education programs to offer trainings to all of our Jewish educators so that they have a sense of what these issues entail. Right? I'm starting to talk to communities about more education offerings, both for those in addiction and for the family members and for the educators and other you know, therapists and counselors and those who work in with with people in recovery and to try and say that ultimately this is not 
an issue that doesn't touch the Jewish world, which is which is what what I mean by that is, of course, right? Addiction touches the Jewish world, just like it touches every part of the world today, right? And the estimates are that about 10% of Americans are addicted to something. And that's certainly in the case in the Jewish world too, but we don't like to talk about it. Nobody really likes to talk about these issues. So what I'm trying to do is to provide opportunities for the family members, for the loved ones, for congregational leaders to ask, how can we better support people struggling with addiction in our communities, right? How can we host recovery meetings? How can we be open to that? Maybe we have an annual mental health, substance abuse, addiction training in our synagogue, right? Maybe a few synagogues come together. Maybe the Jewish Family Services helps sponsor an event. Right. But why shouldn't there be a national recovery Shabbat once a year? Right. Why shouldn't there be online programs that people can do? Right. And a Jewish recovery podcast and an annual sober Jewish cruise and weekend retreats and more books. And right. That's what I'm trying to do to help raise awareness and end the, the stigma and the shame that so many people have within the Jewish world. So with all of that, I'm starting to put together this coaching program for people who need help and also training programs for educators and also additional programs for people in recovery to just come together. And there'll be some online meetings. There'll be ways for for people to connect with other Jews in recovery and learn and share struggles and and find, you know, experience, strength and hope together. And, you know, we need more resources around every Jewish holiday. How do we handle the holidays from a sober perspective? Why are there so many holidays where we have alcohol and how do we do that? These are real questions that many Jews in recovery struggle with. And I want the rest of the Jewish world to know that this is okay. This is healthy, right? It's actually incredibly holy work for Jews in recovery to to talk about this, to to make it known that they are willing to be resources for other people who are struggling. And that's what I want. So I'm working on creating all of that and people can find you know more information on the Facebook group. It's called Our Jewish Recovery. And then on, on the website, rabbiilan.com and you know many, many more resources coming down the line. Wonderful. Thank you for, for taking all that on and really being such a leader in, in the recovery movement. Uh, it's really, really helpful uh, and amazing what you're doing for, for the community. Um, anything else you'd like to share before we close up? Mostly I want to share that if I can do it, so can you. Right? I'm no better than anyone. I'm no worse than anyone. I'm just someone who struggles with the same kinds of things that other people do. And I believe very strongly that there is tremendous Jewish wisdom that can help us move forward with a better life. Right? I believe very strongly that recovery and Jewish life are not at odds with each other, that they can actually blend seamlessly. There are certainly times when we need to translate a little bit or do things a little bit differently, and that's fine. Right? I, I think that you know, one of my favorite quotes that I share in the book is, the day you were born is the day God decided the world couldn't go on without you any longer. And I really want people to know that because for so many of us, for so many of us, right, we struggle with a lack of hope. We struggle with thinking that it's always going to be this bad, right? And maybe I do deserve all of my suffering. And and maybe I do deserve to be ostracized or homeless or, you know, sick with a disease or whatever it is. And and, and we 
we can't even dream of a better future. And what I'm here to say is if we take steps one day after another, right, if we find a community of people who are, are willing to guide us along the way, if we find a sponsor, we find a mentor, we find a coach, if we find a therapist, right, any of these people, and I recommend all of them actually, right, if, if we can find people who are willing to say, I know where you are, and I know that you're struggling, and I know that you can't see a way forward, but I've been there and I'm going to show you the steps forward, right? That's what I want for everyone to know that recovery is possible for all of us. And we are not defined by the worst things we've ever done, right? Yes, right. we do need to clean up our actions and recovery and the 12 steps do help us do that and make amends where we need to. And that's important work, right? But I am more than just someone who struggles with food and pornography and skin picking and, and gaming and codependency, right? I am, I have also wonderful traits, right? And I'm a good teacher and a, and a listener and supporter and all that. And, and so is everybody else, right? And so what I, what I really want people to know is that no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you've done in life, there's always a way forward if you're willing to take one step after another. If you find the right people who can help you grow, then I guarantee you life can always get better, right? And if there's anyone who's listening to the show that I can be a resource to, I would be more than happy to do so. Well, thank you so much. You are such an inspiration, Rabbi Elon Glazer. I am so honored that you are on our podcast and you are really giving hope to so many people who, as you described, feeling like they're not worthy and they don't have a connection and, and, and you know, are, are defined by sort of their worst actions. You're absolutely right that we're better than all that and that we there's hope and you're providing that hope for so many. So I cannot thank you enough for being here and joining us and doing the tremendous work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor, and thanks for doing the work with No Shame on You as well. This is, this is important work, and we all need it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's truly an honor, and we look forward to, to keeping up with you and seeing all the great things you've got, you've got coming up. So thank you so much. Thank you.